Welcome to the Portion Podcast, a weekly discussion of the Torah portion of the week. I'm your host, Aaron Roller, here with my co-host, Rabbi Jonathan Bienenfeld. Absolutely thrilled to be here. Shavua Tov. Shavua Tov. This is early, man. Early in the week. Sunday morning recording. (laughs) This is great. Because you are on your way to a well-deserved vacation. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to it. So look at look at that. Just uh, just just before catching a flight, Rabbi Bienefeld is sitting down with me, and we're going to talk about Parshat Vaera. Let's do it. I guess before that, are there? Do you have any uh, any travel tips for our listeners? Uh, you know what? My my uh, travel tip is to is to travel. I'm actually that's going to be. Uh, I'm going to write about this uh, in in my next blog this uh, this coming Thursday. So if you have not already visited RabbiJonathanBienefeld.com and subscribed, make sure you do. Because I'm going to be speaking about the importance of vacation, the importance of time away. Excellent. I, I think that is seeing all that you do, all you're busy with. I, I can definitely vouch for the importance, and I'm gonna I'm gonna try to follow your your lead and maybe uh, try to try to take some time uh, soon and maybe rope us into babysitting. I, I assume is uh, part of the plan. We'll see. We'll see. Whatever whatever works. But the um, no, it's it's just interesting because it, it was. I don't think it was intentional that the uh, the Dvar Halacha you did uh, after davening this morning was about how you have to what could be interpreted as you have to see the world. We're doing the the halachas of saying the bracha of Shechianu, and it said you, people are going to have to give an accounting for the things uh, that they didn't enjoy. Uh, speaking specifically about eating, but I, I think that it plays it plays out right. Isn't there the the story. Rehearsed story, right? The Is that what you're thinking story? of? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you think of my Alps? Right. God's going to say that to me, and you got to see the Alps. Anyway, so that's that's that. This this week we're going to see the pyramids. Very good. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, we're we're, we're we are in Vaera. We are in the the midst of the the Exodus story. It's a little uh, you know reading the parsha this week. I feel like I am uh, getting a, a little taste of the Pesach Seder. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that always happens around this time of uh, this time of year. Well, with these parshios, I mean. Yeah, yeah. So we've got the the four echoes of Pesach. Yeah, the the four. Uh, languages, the four words that relate to the to, to the redemption, appear in this week's Torah portion, which uh, become the basis for the four cups of wine at the Pesach Seder. Four cu- am I am I wrong about this? Four cups of wine. No, you got it. Yeah, okay. supposed to drink four cups. Right. Usually you fall asleep sometime. Uh, you know, around uh, Shulchan Aruch. Between yeah, three so, and four. Right. Right. So that's or right. Not aware. Yeah. You, you mean me personally? Yeah. We I usually we usually we usually have to wake you up and you know stick some afikomen in your mouth and and and. Uh, you know, pour the fourth cup down a funnel. It's usually what happens. You know what? There's usually a lull between the uh, main course of Shulchan Aruch and and the the you know I'd put in air quotes dessert because dessert is really afikomen, but like the Pesach cake or right uh, you know gel candies yeah. or chocolate covered matzah or whatever it's going to be. Um, there's sort of a lull, and I sometimes take advantage. That of, that lull has a, a particular uh, magnetism for you towards a towards the uh, couch, whatever the closest couch is. I view that as a strategic time to gather my strength to rally for the end of the Pesel Seder. I thought it was it was in commemoration of the idea that they used to actually eat reclining. I mean, that's how the Gemara speaks about <laughs> the entire Seder. So I thought I thought it was uh, absolutely. It just goes. It just goes to show how great our rabbis were that they were able to eat reclining and still stay awake. <laughs> that's right. All right. Anyway, so we're in Parshat Vaera and we get the beginning of the Ten Commandments in this week's uh, Torah portion. And I thought it would be a good idea to talk about. Uh, you you mean the ten plagues, right? The ten plagues. Just wanted to make sure. Wow, that's a interesting slip. So yeah, the ten plagues, and I thought it would be interesting to talk about uh, miracles and the idea that that God changes nature, um, because you know, and, and 
for for one thing, <laughs> before we started recording, uh, Rabbi Bienenfeld was saying how what an exciting parsha it is, and I I was gonna say that I think this is, I I thought it's kind of boring, a little repetitive, monotonous, monot. You know, it's just we get we've got I think what the first seven of the ten plagues for are seven this weeks, right? And they pretty much all play out the same way. Where correct? They right. there's something horrible, unimaginable. Uh, plague that is outside the realm of the natural world uh, the rivers turn to blood or you're infested by frogs or lice or or the d- moshe throws dirt into the air and everyone breaks out in in hives or boils as uh, we traditionally translate it and you know ending with hail flaming hail i mean it's just it it's it's this uh parade of of terrible things but it but in every single time it's like pretty much Something terrible happens. Paro says, "Okay, pray for me," or, or, or I'll let the people go. And then they do. The plague stops, and Paro says, "No, I changed my mind." So it, it gets a little bit, it, it gets a little bit repetitive, and it, and it and it strikes me as being a, a sort of ironic in the sense that so many crazy things were happening, and yet, like as a reader, I just I'm just saying very very viscerally, it's just kind of like you know. Like up and down and up and down and up and down again. I I just didn't like. I mean, I, listen. I, I know the story already, so you could say that about most parts of the Torah. But but it, the experience of reading each of these parshiot, I just found to be a little bit, like you said, monotonous. And I think that the conversation really that we're having is so. I, I think it it almost uh, it's what's played out in the parsha, meaning that you know where am I coming from? That that the imagery is just so exciting. I mean, the, the kinds of, of sweeping visions that, that are conjured up in your mind of the entire Nile River changing to blood and then the, the frogs and, and the midrashim and you know, it's the big frog and they strike the bigger, the little frogs come out, the frogs are just absolutely everywhere. I love it. You know, even beyond these, you know, cutesy little uh, songs that we, that we say frogs here fro-, and we oh, turn it all into like a nursery rhyme. We have an entire book that's basically written like in Dr. Seuss kind of rhyming meter just about the frogs. Really? Yeah, I think it's called Pharaoh Pharaoh and the Frogs. There's a there's an adjective I'm missing in there, Pharaoh and the something frogs. So I, I think, you know, to some degree it it's almost a I don't know if tragedy is the right word, but it's a shame that because of the vivid imagery, we believe that these are the kinds of this is the part of the Seder that the, the, the children can really sort of latch onto. And then we have we have like the puppets and the mask and all these things, and we almost downgrade all these really ferocious, really horrifying plagues into nursery rhymes and and stuffed animals and masks. And, and oh, here comes the lion! The lion might eat your head up. No, no, there were lions eating people's heads. Off, you know, and it was really supposed to be very, and it was very frightening. But I think it's so interesting. So on the one hand, you could say, wow, the imagery is just so remarkable and it's so sweeping. And at the same exact time, you're right that it becomes monotonous. And I think that that's exactly what's at play in the parsha itself, that the habituation to something that is so remarkable and so miraculous from the perspective of a pharaoh and the Egyptians is that it's almost like, yeah, same old, same old, like it's happened before and we'll get past it and I'll make a promise and then I'll break the promise. And it's just again and again and again. And, you know, going back to the question of, so what's the purpose of these miracles? In part, I think it's to show just how staunch human nature can be, that when you, that, that the, in the interest of, of going unchanged, you can almost withstand any stimulus or series of stimuli that are pushing you to the contrary. Oh, yeah, I, I agree. I think that, I, I, I mean, I, I think it's almost inten- intentional in a, in a sense. I think that the fact that 
this is the most miraculous Parsha, I think. And I was thinking sort of about the the categories here. It, it, I, like, I found myself thinking, like, there are more miracles here than than anything we've read before. But that's sure. that's with a caveat. It might not. Even, it might even be without a caveat. But I, I was going to say that, you know, I, I think this is difficult for people in a modern headspace where we're, you know, just everything. Everything seems everything in the in the Torah seems miraculous. But I, I think there's a um, some different categories which tend to get lumped together uh, in in the modern era in the sense that I don't think there are that many miracles in Sefer Breshit. There are angels. There is God speaking to people. But I don't think of those as really aren't miracles. They're right. not miracles. Those are supernatural phenomena, or those are are. I think that is a sign of people being more highly attuned to spiritual phenomena. Right. Right. So yeah, like, I agree that there's, you know, you imagine like a, uh, you know, it's a, a radio or or some kind of uh, maybe more uh, be- a better description than a radio would be like maybe like the the tools that they use to detect earthquakes or something like that. Like a what's it called a seismograph? Right. Uh, maybe. Yeah. Anyway, whatever whatever the point the point is is like Avram Avinu can pick up God. Like that's what it is. And that's really how the Ramam speaks about prophecy, right? That it's more of, of trying to dial into the right frequency. Right. So like that that's that's not and so the angels coming to visit, like I, I think all of that is under the category it's not under the category of, of miracles. The one like the the miracles in the Torah well we you know, we have miracles until like the uh the tower of, of Babel. Right, like that's that. There are lots of miracles, I and mean, the Garden of Eden is a whole yeah, other the, thing. Yeah, the flood, the flood, but, obviously. But from the time we get to like Abraham, we're really telling the story of of the yeah, patriarchs. The it's not. I mean, Sodom, Sodom, for sure. Stone. For sure, there is, and and anyway, but I mean, that's an interesting relationship between Stone and sure, and right. and and Egypt in its own right, because it's also the idea of God stepping in to uh, to destroy a society based on uh, injustice in that society. So, but anyway, here we are, and and now we're getting like. Real miracles—the idea that there is an order to nature, and it's, it's being, being overturned, and it's being overturned—that yeah, things that agreed. you cannot imagine that don't happen, that that just are outside the realm—and it's it's like I think it's almost like the exception that proves the rule. Like I think that God, God doesn't—I mean, you know, God, everything is a miracle, right? Every everything is a miracle. Like you, you open your eyes in the morning—that's a miracle. You can you can and probably should have that perspective because the fact that God sets up the laws of nature, the fact that there is consistency in nature is itself a miracle. But when these things break down, it, it's supposed to be for a very limited time and it's supposed to be to prove a very, very specific point, right? Like this is unprecedented in history for the purpose of, of God's intervening to make, you know, to fulfill a promise to Abraham, to uh, instill a sense of a, a, a love for justice and for human dignity. And and so this divine intervention is coming for this very specific thing, but like on a certain level it's supposed to destroy Egyptian society, but I think we're also supposed to like almost I don't know, maybe maybe I'm wrong. Maybe everybody else is like this is the most exciting part of the Torah. But to me it's like it, it's good for it to be a little bit bracketed off. I don't know if monotonous is the right word, but like it's good for it to feel different. Well, almost. definitely feels different. <laughs> no, but like in other words, it's not supposed to be like, oh, I wish the world was this way. Right. So I, I think that that's a very important. Whatever whatever purpose miracles are meant to serve, it's not always going to be like this. And I think that that clearly it's important enough to happen in the first place. But what what God does by design in order to in order to compensate for the reality that that nature at some point is going to continue its natural order and natural flow 
is that he makes absolutely paramount the the relation the, the relating of this story from generation to generation it's an amazing thing there is nothing that we are meant to commemorate more frequently or that's spoken about more frequently in the torah than the idea of zecher litzias mitzrayim remembering the exodus and that is something that needs to be conveyed from generation to the to the next we have an entire holiday or series of holidays really to some degree at least based on that idea pesach obviously the most prominent of them all, but we find it that, it that it works its way into Shabbos. We find that it works its way into some other strange areas, into tefillin, into uh, charging interest. We find it again and again and again, um, and probably for this reason, meaning that it is critical that we recognize that God has the ability to upend nature on the one hand. On the other hand, it's also critical that God allow nature to flow according to its natural course. So how do we how do we experience both? We're basically going to be left experiencing nature, but with this very robust Mesorah, this this tradition, this transmission that God has this ability and God has flexed those muscles previously. And, and I, I mean I think to spell it out a, a little bit further, then this is where God reveals his will. Right? Like Hashem shows that his will is is against oppressors. His will is against... And I was talking to the kids on the way to shul yesterday and reminded them, like, everything the Egyptians did was legal, right? That, I mean, I, I really prefer the the translation of sare misim, uh, you know, the taskmasters that were put over the Jews as, as a mas, as taxmasters, that the they were... There was a tax initially that, the, you you know, you're going to have to help with this... Uh, this is really anti-establishment, some, this, some uh, national this little pro- speech of yours. Uh, yes, uh, essentially, or, or, you know, or pro, pro-civil disobedience, uh, pro-questioning, uh, you know, when, when laws are enshrined that are that are oppressive to people, absolutely. Pro-tax that... evasion. No, well, I'm joking. I got it. I, you know, it, no, I, I think that it's... The, the be- listen, <laughs> stepping back for a second, the beautiful thing about the Torah is that it's not, it's it's never, I mean, it's ne- never absolute. It's pretty absolute, but it's it's never all or nothing in terms of some ide- ideological uh, agenda. The the Torah is on the one hand, yeah, I, I think you could definitely take this message and say there's something, um, you know, the the king is not supposed to be uh, greedy or high handed with people and 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 overly tax people, and we see that play out disastrously in the times of of uh, King Solomon. But on the other hand, we have uh, you know tithes and and pe- you know gleaning and and leaving a corner of your field for the poor. There's all kinds of of laws which are meant to, in their most ideal sense, taxes are intended to achieve greater aims sure. that the society that the individuals society, can achieve exactly on their own. And, and so. You know, you know, without without the help of the Torah, societies have to try to modulate and, and get it right. But the point is, is that when they go too far, it's very very clear that that the Torah is is on the side of of speaking out against uh, oppressive laws. So I don't know if we really want to tumble down this rabbit hole too far because no, we don't really want to so. bring it back to miracles. <laughs> I think we, but I just wanted to mention I did think that we we spoke about this last year a little bit. Maybe it was Shmos, maybe Vaira, maybe Bo. I'm not sure, but this. This real looming question of is the narrative of the Exodus is it is it universal or is it particular? And I, I think that's an interesting question here. Meaning, it, is the message is what God is saying is 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 God saying that effectively what Pharaoh does is so wrong and it's so heinous, it's a crime against humanity, and that's why I'm going to stop him. 
or is it that nobody does this to my people? Nobody does this to to my special nation. I'm going to come to their rescue. I don't know that they're mutually exclusive, but I'm not I'm not convinced enough that this has the universalist sort of overtones that uh, many many ascribe to it. I think it does and it doesn't. I think it does not in the sense that it only happens once this way in history, right? God only upends nature this one time for the Jewish people. And and no, I mean, and there are certainly stories, you know, you could get books and books, children's books, uh, you know, all, all kinds of collections of, of stories in times of oppression, pogroms, inquisitions, the Holocaust of, of you know, things that felt like miracles. But the, the upending of nature only happens once in all of history to the Jews or otherwise. So I, I think it's very particularist in that sense, but I also but I but I think that the follow-up point, it, it's not like, oh, it's bad for it's bad for the Jewish people to be enslaved, but enslavement is good for other people. Right. I think you get that from the message of the rest of the Torah, really. Meaning, you, you know, it's not that God gives the Jews themselves carte blanche to behave in the same way that Pharaoh did, as long as you're busy oppressing others. I mean, that would be like very—that's a very polytheistic way of looking at the world. The idea that, that there are specific nations with specific gods, and those gods protect those nations, even at the at the real brutal expense of, of other nations— it's, or that there's one God who just doesn't care about, you know, people are created in God's image, but he doesn't care about... Uh, well, that's what I mean. It's, hard, it's very hard to square those away. But the, the reason why what the, what the Egyptians did was wrong is because the entire, the entire Torah really, really conveys that message, that you're supposed, to, you're supposed to be kind and you're supposed to be gentle and you're not supposed to oppress, and that we're supposed to remember what it felt like to be strangers in, in Egypt, that we don't treat other people that way, that, that we're not allowed to 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 devalue human life no human neither human life of Jews nor nor non-Jews or any and, and and theft is prohibited across the board so where's the where's the but for you the but for me is that I don't know that that it's fair to derive that idea from from the exodus specifically um that there's something about maybe the idea specifically of turning or and and maybe again it's one of the same but the idea of of specifically turning over nature that there's something about that like God is here to protect me in a way that he wouldn't necessarily when it comes to other people. And it speaks to the the very special, the unique covenant that the Jewish people enjoy with with God. And that I think that in part, at least as far as the Jews are concerned, that's the that's the value and that's the importance of these miracles. Meaning that uh, I mentioned Shabbos before. It is it's it's really interesting. When we think about Shabbos, I would think that our first thought goes back to the narrative of the creation of the universe in Genesis. Because the seventh day is the day when God rested. What in the world does Shabbos have to do with with Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim and with the Exodus and with the plagues and everything that we're witnessing and we're reading about in this in these parshios, the series of parshios? So I, I think it's it's really based on what you said before, that one can imagine that God creates the world and then basically abdicates the throne and nature is put into place and let's just and just allow it to sort of continue on its on its natural course and whatever happens happens. Gnosticism. What, Gnosticism? Gnostic yeah, right. And what and what the G is silent. I think so. Yeah. And what unless it's unless you're an agnostic. Mm. Uh, and what God is basically saying here is that that's not the case that i'm still i'm still active i'm an active dynamic participant in human history i desire that human history go according to a particular arc 
and when need be, I will force it that way, even if there are natural forces against me. And I think that becomes an important, and that's what Shabbos is. Shabbos is the recognition of not only then God's creation of the universe once upon a time, but his continued creation of the universe. We make reference to this even in the Shabbos uh, liturgy, the idea that that God is perpetually creating and recreating the universe, that he's, he's always there. He's always a constant and active force. And that becomes an important reality, even in terms of the way that we view nature or the way that we view phenomena that, that maybe feel somewhat miraculous, but perhaps in a more muted sense. I don't think it's fair to compare, really, some of the events that have taken place since the founding of the State of Israel to the the full-blown pageantry of the miracles that we're reading about in these parshios. But if you learn the lesson of these parshios, it, it becomes impossible to, to ignore the more recent and modern-day miracles, and you're almost compelled to view those as, as part of the same process. God is a dynamic force. He's an active force. He has a desire. He has an interest in seeing history land in a, at, a, at a particular finish line, and he's guiding everything towards that eventuality. So to plug this into the text, I think that that is that that is what we're seeing right in the right in the beginning. There's this interesting, you know, interesting, curious um, thing which Hashem says to Moshe. Right? He says, because um, you know Moshe ends saying like, "Oh, this this was a big mess. I told you they weren't going to believe me," and uh, you know. Hashem basically says to to paraphrase says you ain't seen nothing yet, um, but what he says is um, oh in the very first pasuk Vayedaber Elokim El Moshe Vayomer Elav Ani Hashem he says I am God with using the four letter word the Era El Avraham El Yitzchak four, four letter name four letter name not yeah. a four letter uh, yeah. well it's a four letter yeah that's true Vayera El Avraham El Yitzchak Ve El Yaakov Bekel Shaddai. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob with this name of Kel Shaddai, Ushmi Hashem Lonadati Lahem, and this other name uh, was not known to them. And that the commentaries all struggle with that because it seems pretty clear in in Genesis that that name is known to the the patriarchs. It's used many many times. And so, what what exactly does that mean? And and so one interpretation is that for the patriarchs, it was just a promise. It was it was you know the idea of this name this name of God basically communicates God's involvement and and for them it was just a promise that they were going to become a nation uh, you know it was promised to to Abraham during the uh, the Brit Ben Abitarim, the you know the covenant of the parts that that his children were going to become slaves and then be brought back but now there's Moshe is seeing it in a way that was only promised to them he's seeing the fulfillment of it. And it, it was interesting. I was reading an essay by uh, Rabbi uh, Ozer Glickman uh, Zatzal, who was a rabbi at Yeshiva University, who passed away a year or two ago. He was talking about this, this question about, like, who had the higher level of revelation? We say Moshe was the greatest of the prophets, and yet was he greater than the, the patriarchs? And sort of looking at the, the different uh, commentaries on that, and, and he, you know, basically comes down and says it, it's not a question of greatness, it's a question of sort of what what is being revealed and you know Avraham is coming without any tradition he's coming without any prophecy and sort of discovering God on his own and that's a very very high level um but Moshe here is seeing the manifestation of God in history which is something that the patriarchs as, as great as they were didn't get to see in the same way and uh so I think that that's very much to your point that that this is meant and I, I think that's sort of my point in, in the miracles miracles are on a certain level if 
you know, and I just want to kind of, if it wasn't clear, sort of refine what I was saying that like, I mean, we're, we're living in a world where magic is super exciting to people, Harry Potter and superheroes and just, we were sort of living in a, in a time and maybe all times are like this, where just fantasy is, is super exciting. But I think if you, like, if we really had Superman in real life, if we really had people walking around with powers and all this stuff, like, I think things become very, very boring. Like, like, you know, a world where you can just say a, say a, a spell and all of a sudden your problems are solved. Like it's a world that's, you know, this instrumentalist world where well, it it, bre- it breeds a responsibility, and I think that's that's exactly the the point yes. that we end up with 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 God saying that you can, you can have this for now. Meaning, when you are at a point, when you are at a point, and this is exactly what seems to trigger the Exodus. This is when the Torah tells us that God actually speaks to Moshe, Moshe and He appoints him as the as the redeemer, and He brings him back. Is when things had gotten so bad that the Jewish people said, we have absolutely no way out of this. There, We have no means at our own disposal to get our way out of this. They call out, they cry out to God, God hears their cry, and then he appoints Moshe, and then the, the exodus basically is launched. But imagine if this was always a, a card that you could play, what would what would we look like? What would what would happen? What would happen to us? What would happen to our responsibility? We could claim that it would be a matter of well, we'd have such utter complete faith on the one hand, but if utter and complete faith basically uh, uh, forces you or, or gives you the opportunity to just spend your life in a hammock, uh, there's something there's something missing. There's something lacking. That's that's really. I mean, we'll get there. I don't know. Maybe we could talk about it at the end of the the parish, maybe in Bamidbar. But that's sort of the the pivot between life in the wilderness and life in Israel, and that life in Israel is meant to be a decidedly natural one, with the nevertheless the the realization that God is really there and God is right behind the is, is right behind the curtain. Well, I, I think taking that view, then I, I think we would say that this parsha is really the transition, or the 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 very very beginning of that transition to the miraculous life. That is going to the people are going to experience in the desert, right? And and that's kind of yeah. And and so you know we're we're in a world of we're in a world of miracles. Uh, we're in a world of seeing uh, that God cares, that God is involved, and it's a and and that's a a world that is meant to that we're not meant to live in, but one that is meant to refine and define the way we look at reality and the way we're meant to uh, you know act towards the world and and define ourselves within it as as people. Who who take action? People who care, who are empathetic, and uh, I think that's uh, that's a good place to close. I, I will note one thing we didn't talk about at all is is the you know the famous question of of uh, Pharaoh's free will and and sort of why these these things have to keep happening. Um, but I think maybe that's uh, maybe next week. Maybe we, next we'll week. have time next week for that, and I think maybe that's what we we should plan on it. So a little uh, sneak preview there. All right, excellent. Have a great trip to have a great trip. Thanks. All right. The Portion Podcast is recorded in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, produced by Aaron Roller. Our theme music is The Magad's Niggin by Simply Tzfat. If you enjoyed the show, please tell your friends about it any way you can. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate us and leave a review. We are sponsored by the Pravda Family Foundation. Please follow the show on Facebook. Have a good Shabbos. And remember, there is always more to learn. (laughs) 